This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A., and we are back still talking about Hannibal Lecter all month long. I, we're on to what I would call our main course, The Silence of the Lambs, the second novel in the four-part Hannibal Lecter series. It was published in 1988, which makes it coming seven years after Red Dragon and two years after the failure of the movie adaptation of Red Dragon called Manhunter. And while you might think that they wouldn't be excited to make a movie of Silence of the Lambs given the box office failure of the last movie, it's easy to see why anyone that would spend the time reading the novel could see how much better it is. I really feel like they've perfected the formula here, that Thomas Harris has taken the strengths of what he started with and really tightened it, and that we basically have the same formula. It's essentially the same story as the last time. We have a criminal profiler, we have Lecter as a caged advisor, and we have a on-the-loose serial killer. But everyone plays a more participatory role here, and I feel like it's got a lot more tension and a lot more pizzazz. It's You'd want to see this movie, even knowing that Manhunter hadn't done well. And I feel like their best asset is our profiler, that yes, Will Graham is gone, he's retired, and he's staying in Florida, and now we have Clarice Starling stepping into his role here. And Clarice is fascinating to us for two reasons. One, of course, she's a woman in a profession that is dominated by men, and we question how she's going to handle the fact that she and basically her roommate Odelia are the only women in a male-dominated profession trying to get dignity and trying to prove themselves and the other part of this is she's a trainee it's not just that she's new to the force she's still learning she has not graduated yet she has forensics in her background and that's why Crawford brings her onto the project that and you know he's got a little bit of a crush too but that comes later but it's her forensic background that catches his eye but she doesn't have the police work really she's you know firing a gun all of this her dad it's explained that he was to marshal but basically a night watchman she claims to have service in her background but it's pretty thin and she knows it Crawford knows it and she's really only there because Crawford has need of her as a woman he has objectified her and he has put her into harm's way by sending her into the Baltimore sanitarium where Hannibal Lecter is being kept and asking her to deliver a survey. So right away, our heart is going out to her because she may not be as capable as Will Graham. We don't know yet. We feel for her. She may be in and over her head. And of course, what she's really going to be discovering, what she's really here to do is to get information to stop a killer of women, a murder of women that are more or less just like her. They're overweight, but essentially they are women from poor backgrounds who are preyed upon that a, this nicknamed Buffalo Bill is kidnapping, keeping in his clutches for a week, and then skinning them and dumping their bodies in a river. And so... What we're really going to see here is a story of her ability to triumph and to use what is considered a negative, her feminine side, to actually unravel a mystery that has not been cracked by the men that she is working for. 
And like in Red Dragon, there's no real connection between the six women that have turned up so far, that they didn't know each other, they were from different parts of the country. Here, it's really Clarice's job to find those connections, and she has to turn to Lecter to help her see them. Now, it should be emphasized that in the novels, I I think it's less clear in the movies, but in the novels, Lecter is a killer of women, that by and large, the people that he's murdered have been co-eds, and he is not necessarily, I, I think we think of him as a charming gentleman, and maybe more genteel to women than men, because of his preference for kindness, to his avoidance of being rude. But it's a heavy subtext here that a pretty young co-ed is essentially being sent in uh, as bait to the lion's den. We're not sure what to think of her. Crawford has underestimated her. Lecter is objectifying her and taunting her from the beginning. But what becomes clear over the course of their interactions over the week that they get to know each other is that Lecter eventually is seduced by the fact that he sees an intellectual equal, that he makes the transference that she's much like him, that she remains polite in the face of rudeness in a horrible world, that she can stare at evil and still retain her humanity, and he turns their conversations really into a striptease, if you were. You tell me a little bit about yourself, and I'll tell you a little bit about the case. And in doing so, you get the sense that there's... Love's a strange word to use when you're dealing with madmen, but you get the sense that there is a transference, and that there is a camaraderie that we didn't get the sense of when he was speaking to Will Graham, that with Will, he was angry at him that he had been caught by this man. He resented him. But here, he very much would like to get out and to get to know her, and that's sort of where this heads. I actually found that the movie of Silence of the Lambs has been incredibly faithful to this novel. There are many, many similarities, more so than Red Dragon's adaptation into Manhunter. I'm not quite sure if Brett Ratner's Red Dragon is is more faithful. I haven't revisited that movie yet. But in this circumstance, I really feel like the screenwriter Ted Talley did a great job of translating what's here on the page, and he's gotten many details identically. That said, there's always nice embellishments when you go back and you read ephemeral things that just can't translate to a movie that are here in the book. One little detail I I love is the way that they've expanded upon Lecter's uh, rivalry with his jailer, Dr. Chilton. Chilton is sort of this vain, arrogant man that he uses Lecter as a tool to try and further his status in the intellectual community. And there's a funny bit of business about how he actually hooked Lecter's penis up to a blood pressure machine and tried to conduct all of these tests to prove his madness in a way that had not been documented before. And really all that happened is Lecter, who still gets published in medical journals, wrote about the humiliations he endured in the sanitarium and ended up writing a very negative piece about the uh, way that businesses run. So it, it backfired on Chilton. He ended up looking like much more of an ass than he was counting on looking like the hero here. And that's really the back and forth struggle. That's really the biggest reason why Lecter is almost hesitant, I would say, to participate with this case. Chilton will be taping all of the dialogue, audio recording. Clarice doesn't know, but Chilton is audio recording her conversations with Lecter and studying them and trying to find an angle for himself in them. And Hannibal knows it. So Hannibal is speaking in code partly because he wants 
clearish to figure it out, but partly because he doesn't want to give anything to Chilton that would make Chilton look good. It's a big part of the story. It's in the movie, of course, uh, a memorable part and, and, and gives a great climax to the movie where he gets eaten. Here, it's much more expansive and it's much more enjoyable, the little details and moments we get between Lecter and Chilton. The book, I don't think, actually makes it clear that he finds and eats him after he gets free. It's, I think that's just sort of a quote-unquote happy ending they give for the movie, a little last laugh. But it's very clear that Lecter gets revenge on those that hurt him. I'm really starting to learn that that's how Lecter thinks. You know, revenge for him is fun. It's poetic fun. And really the point of it all is that he doesn't enter into a situation without him thinking how to best take advantage for himself and how to get back at the people should they betray him. And right from the get-go, right it before the story's even started, he's already humiliated Chilton and set up a really difficult circumstance for Clarice to work under. And of course... Hannibal has been working all of this time on escaping. In the movie, they sort of set it up that it's one pin uh, erroneously left by Chilton that gets Lecter to fly the coop, but it's actually taken a lot more work in the book. He's amassed little bits and pieces over time and stuffed them under his mattress. He A paper cup there, a little something there, a doodad. He's creating a lockpick. Nobody knows that he has this thing, but it may not even look like a lockpick if you were to find it once you're, you know, one of the interns like Barney is cleaning the room. But that's what he's really been working on. It isn't a moment of inspiration, but he is hoping to use these dialogues with Clarice to disadvantage. I do think that it's part of the reason why he keeps her talking and keeps working with her is that he thinks that he might be able to finally engage with his escape plot. One of the things that's made clear pretty early on in the dialogues with Clarice is that Hannibal Lecter knew the Buffalo Bill killer in his former life as a shrink, that he had one session with him that he was referred to him by another patient, a longtime patient named Benjamin Raspail. Benjamin Raspail is a flutist who was depressed, homosexual, living in San Francisco, had a Swedish lover named Klaus. Klaus was beheaded by Buffalo Bill, it ends up being, and Benjamin keeps his head in a jar. In the movie, this plays a little bit differently. We find out that the head in the jar is Benjamin Raspail, and that they imply that Buffalo Bill was his lover that killed him. It shortens things, it gets things moving faster in the movie, which is very important. Pacing is much more important in a movie than a book. But I think the backstory makes a lot more sense. It's a little less hysterical, maybe a little less homophobic in the book. We just understand more that the Buffalo Bill character is not a predatory homosexual but in fact a very disturbed person whose gender discomfort has led him into the gay community, but not having uh, affairs. He is not dating Benjamin Raspail, and really he's not someone to be trusted. Even before Klaus is killed, Benjamin and Klaus have witnessed some monstrous things. There's talk about things that Buffalo Bill did to a vagrant with the skin, and they were there to witness the early transformation that Buffalo Bill is trying to go through, that we will find out through the course of the novel that by killing, he is trying to transcend his gender and his body. And I, I should also point out, I really like the idea that it's Lecter that killed Raspail. It's, it was his last victim, his ninth and last victim, was his patient. And Lecter says his 
therapy was going nowhere, so he just decided that the knife really was the best thing. And I, I love that about Lecter. I love the fact that his boredom leads to his crimes, that he can just be like, you're beyond help, and I'm bored with you. So, stab right in the throat, right while he's lying out on the couch, bearing his soul. It's just a Lecter trait, you know? It's, it's just something we see again and again. If you bore him, you will suffer his wrath. Murder to him keeps life interesting. Death really keeps him alive, I suppose. And my relationship with Lecter, it's the same really as anyone's. You want to get close to his intellect. He's so charming. The wit, the brain, what he has to share is so important. You want to get close, but at the same time, he's so judgmental. You piss him off, you're going to end up his dinner. And uh, I mean, that's the lessons that Will Graham and countless others have learned, that it's just, you're playing with the devil here. But Clarice can play. She's got game. As it turns out, she's just as smart as Lecter, and she and Crawford cook up a phony deal, uh, promising him away from Chilton in the sanitarium in exchange for the information about this patient. You know, he must have something, and he didn't keep good records, but he has a great memory, so he should be able to provide at least a physical description, if not a name or a a false name or something about who this person was 10 years ago when he saw him as a patient. And of course, it's Chilton, evil Chilton, taping uh, the conversation that gets wind of this and decides, hey, it's all about me. He lets Lecter know in private that this is a phony deal, uh, that he's called around and done some investigating and that there is no transfer awaiting him and that he really is still going to be his pet. But of course, Chilton has an angle to how to make this work for him. A new woman has been captured, Catherine Martin. She's the daughter of a Tennessee senator. And Chilton wants to look like the guy who rescues her by being the one to present Hannibal Lecter and, and get him to talk. So he arranges his own deal with the senator. He goes beyond Crawford and Clarice, who he's sort of mad at anyway because he kind of hit on and she just wasn't having any of it. So... Basically, they fly Hannibal Lecter to Memphis to meet with the senator so that Chilton can be the knight in shining armor and Lecter can divulge what is known about Buffalo Bill, the real Buffalo Bill. And Lecter's playing right along. Why shouldn't he? Because he knows that this is his moment to get away. He has a little bit of fun with the senator. He kind of taunts her. She doesn't play ball the way that Clarice does. And then as he's being watched by two jailers, he makes his move. It's more or less the same thing that happens in the movie, but a little less theatrical. The Anthony Hopkins portrayal of Lecter really shows him going over the top and stringing up the bodies in a way that presents a diorama almost. It doesn't really play that way here in the novel. It's much more simple. He kills them both takes the face off of one to impersonate them so that he gets an ambulance out of there and then proceeds to slip out into the night. In the movie, after he busts out, that's pretty much the end for Lecter until a final phone call in the last scene of the movie. In the book, there's a little bit more of him. He actually goes to St. Louis. He steals a truck from a parking lot and goes into hiding and assumes the identity of a man and lives in a hotel and proceeds to get cosmetic surgeries, nose jobs and such. He's trying to make himself look different enough so that he can get on an airplane and escape the country. That's really his story. This is a story about transformation and, and his is about a flight to freedom and I guess what he's willing to do with flesh to achieve it. Meanwhile, while we occasionally peer back at him, the story between Crawford, Clarice, and Buffalo Bill continues to escalate. 
Now it's revealed that Buffalo Bill, that was the name given to him by cops who were joking that he skins humps, but truly his his birth name is James Gum. That's pretty much like the movie. Once we start learning more about him, though, it doesn't really overtake the story. You know, my complaint about Red Dragon was that once we learn that Tooth Fairy slash Red Dragon is Dollar Hide, the whole novel really switches to him he becomes the focal point for all and here i feel like we still are really following clarice and to a much lesser extent lector in these later parts of the novel and we get enough of his backstory to understand him but it feels less detailed one thing that i really like though that's not in the movie the bug guys you know they they start finding that there are bug cocoons in each of the victims throats and they pull them out she brings it to the smithsonian and there is a scientist who defines the bug cocoon as what he calls an imago i-m-a-g-o imago is a winged insect like a moth or a butterfly or, or what have you there's also a psychoanalytic term for an imago it has a different meaning and that dual meaning is sort of the metaphor that's playing out here that an imago is both a winged insect and it is also your unconscious impression first impression of your parents so however you were treated by them when you were being held as a baby or abused or anything you might have witnessed that's imprinted on your subconscious and that imago exists with you and stays with you and what they're trying to get at here is that James Gum seems his butterfly-like transformation into a transformation back into that state that he is obsessed with his mother and that he may even kind of want to become his mother that he has been screening all of these weird old newsreels of uh, beauty pageants and sex films and he sees his mother in them he's like there she is and he's got his little dog and they watch these films at home and it's not entirely clear whether that really was his mother's story whether she really did have this depraved other life or whether that's just what he's projected into these movies that he's found but for whatever reason he is using that impression to fuel his fantasy and to fuel his transformation like a caterpillar into a butterfly it's not all there but we get just a, a stronger sense of what's driving the woman's suit the need to actually change his body into a woman it doesn't just come from gender discomfort it comes from really a sense of parental longing and abuse that less defined than red dragon but still quite evident that's james gum's transformation i feel like the transformation is more fluid in all the characters something that's not in the movie as well as jack crawford the attraction that he has for clarice is largely unspoken but quite evident both in the movie and on the page but in the book they've given him an added subplot his wife is been dying for some time of inoperable cancer and that at a certain point when she passes it forces him to personally step down from the case and that's sort of leaving Clarice alone it, it functions in the novel as yet another mentor that steps out of her life Lecter has escaped and Jack Crawford has to go bury his wife and now she is really all alone to not depend on the men and to go figure it out and trust her own stinks to solve the case and that works for her story line but for his transformation it also works very well because when he returns into the story at the end he has a new empathy for Clarice much like Lecter could see her as an equal he sees her as an equal because he knows her backstory about losing her father it's her worst memory it's something that she talked about in the quid pro quos with Lecter that get audio taped and he 
has a similar experience losing his wife. And I think that the grief that they mutually share and their need for justice allows him to see her as a professional and not just, hey, a chick we can use to solve this case. I think that he adjusts his attitude in a nice way that isn't just not quite as there in the movie. That's nice to see here in the written word. Of course, the most important transformation is for Clarice to step up and be the FBI agent that she's studying to be. That it's really important in this last part of the story that she figures it out and that she fulfills a destiny that she started really at a young age. Part of how she was able to work with Lecter is that she had to divulge really her story, what led her into the profession. And it's a pivotal moment. And the reason why it's called Silence of the Lambs is that she came to live at her uncle's after her father died and he was on a horse and sheep farm and that she was so traumatized by the spring slaughtering of the lambs that she decided to do something about it, that she couldn't abide by the idea that these lambs could scream and, and die such a horrible, agonizing death. And she wasn't much older than the lamb she was trying to save. But the point is that she has been this child on the run trying to stop the screaming of innocence. And now she is in the perfect position to fulfill that destiny. She was too young to save the lambs. And it, it was slaughtered, the one that she ran away with carrying in the middle of the night. But now she has the opportunity to fulfill this destiny and to save Catherine Martin. And she succeeds. It's just as exciting as it is in the movie that she gets to the house of old Mrs. Lipman and finds that Jim Gum is there and that she has to use her skills and her gun to save Catherine Martin, who's trapped down in a well at the basement of the house, and to execute the killer. She can't wait for backup and follow procedure because Crawford and the other men have flown to Calumet City on false information, basically. Or rather, it's good information that they have falsely presumed is current. I think one of the things that isn't clear when you watch the movie is what exactly has transpired. What course of events has led James Gum to be in this house? We do learn that in the book that he was a tailor for a Calumet City business called Mr. Hyde Incorporated, and that alterations from Mr. Hyde Incorporated were sent to Belvedere, Ohio to a Mrs. Lippman, and that Frederica Bimmel, the first victim, worked with Mrs. Lippman to do those alterations and that they would have correspondence with Jane Gum. That's kind of their history together, and it must have been good enough that when Mrs. Lippman passed, she gave the deed to the house to Jane Gum, or he got wind of it and just took the house over without anyone investigating. But regardless, that's how he came to live in the house and why the FBI didn't know he was in the house. They went to his real house in Calumet City. They didn't know that he had changed locations. So again, it was good information, but it wasn't current. And that's why Crawford is not there to help Clarice, and it's for her to save the day. I really like that Thomas Harris gets in another jab at tabloid journalism here, too, right at the end. The audio cassettes that Chilton has taped between Lecter and Clarice are actually released commercially to the public on cassette called The Velvet Talks. This becomes a sensationalized story, and people actually buy the cassettes to hear the trainee talk to the madman and all of those intimate details, all those things that she thought she was just confessing to one man becomes public knowledge. You know, this was the last novel, uh, the paper that Freddie Lowndes ran, and, you know, he took 
pictures of Will Graham's colostomy bag and published it. They're still up to their old tricks. It's probably worth mentioning the fact that Thomas Harris worked for a lot of newspapers. He covered crime beats for a lot of newspapers and... This probably is a very personal little detail that he's including, but we don't know why. He doesn't do interviews. There's not a whole lot of information as to the hows and whys Thomas Harris chooses uh, the details that he does. But this does feel like a funny, very knowing jab at tabloid journalism here coming right at the end. Wrapping it up, Lecker is getting his silicone. Barney, his caretaker from the hospital, is actually getting an endowment of money that Lecker sends him. Chilton is getting a threatening letter that makes him ask for FBI protection. And Clarice is graduating. You know, for a while there, it looked like they may not even allow her through the program, that they might have used and thrown her away. But she does graduate with honors, and she hooks up with one of the bug guys to boot. She gets a boyfriend out of it. Dr. Pilcher, the man that helped her with the Imago and the Deathhead Moths, he's in her bed as the novel concludes. And unlike in Red Dragon, where I really felt like things were wrapped up, well, Graham's story was told and there wasn't anything more to say, I'm really curious to know what could happen next. It really makes a lot of unfinished business we have between Lecter and Clarice. What will transpire next between the two of them? That she has a very long and promising career ahead of her. It seems inevitable that she would wind up speaking with Lecter again. And maybe not in such a safe environment as a security prison. We'll want to know. And we actually get that novel next week. Hannibal is Thomas Harris's imagining of the reunion between Clary Starling and Hannibal Lecter. And we'll be talking about that both on Books and Nachos and the movie Counterpoint, now playing podcast.com. Check out all of those next week. And thanks for reading. Keep at it. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.